Um, so we've got to the point of working through the obvious caveats about the dangers of wealth, that godliness is far more important, that wealth can be a great source of sinful temptation. We now need to turn the corner, so to speak, and see the positive biblical picture that scripture paints of wealth. And it's really quite striking. I want to work through uh, a few texts just to highlight this to you, uh, and then also talk about the positive uh, aspects of planning that scripture urges us to undertake. And then we'll have some, I'll make some theological connections and draw out some implications from that at the end. But first up, wealth is presented in scripture, not simply as a temptation to sin, not simply as something which is compared negatively to godliness, but as something which is a good gift of God. The most obvious text in which this appears, I mean, there are people who you think of in scripture like Solomon and Job and David and Joseph who had at various points in their lives tremendous wealth and they're held up as models of godliness. That itself ought to be um, a significant um, a datum for us in biblical terms. But the most obvious person, of course, is King Solomon. And in 1 Kings 3, he has his famous dream in which he's um, uh, thinking, uh, he's uh I'm thinking what I'm talking about. He's, he's, he has his conversation with God in, in this in his well-known dream um, uh, about uh, the task that lies before him, and he, he recognizes his, his great need for wisdom in shepherding uh, the people of Israel, and he asks God for wisdom, and the Lord replies to him, uh, "Because you've asked this, and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right. Behold, I now do according to your word. Behold." I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. I give you what you've not asked, both riches and honour, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. Now just think of the rhetorical force of that. Solomon has asked for one good thing, wisdom, and the Lord is pleased that he's done so. And the Lord, out of delight in and pleasure in Solomon's decision to, to ask for wisdom, gives him riches and honour like no other king before or since. Now, what does that imply about riches and honour? It implies that, implies that in themselves, obviously, they're good things. It, it makes no sense rhetorically for the Lord to say, well, because you've asked for this good thing, therefore I'm going to give you this terrible thing as well, all this wealth which will only be trouble to you, all, this, all these riches and all this honour in the sight of all the other nations, which is a tremendously bad thing. That just makes no sense at all, does it? The implication is that we are to assume the goodness of these riches, provided, of course, that they're not contaminated by um, uh, ungodliness and so on and so forth. Now, the extent to which Solomon kept his heart pure during the rest of his life is, you can see that unfolding in uh, First Kings, and it's not uh, an entirely positive picture. But at this stage, the picture of wealth that is set before us in Solomon's life, and in general, is a positive one. You get something similar in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 31, with the picture of the excellent wife. And it's just really intriguing to read through this and note how much of the picture of the excellent wife, uh, the woman who's more precious than rubies, how much of it has to do with economic productivity and material wealth. Let me just read through it and, and just draw your attention um, to a few of these things. An excellent wife who can find, she's far more precious than jewels, that heart of her husband trusts in her and he will have no lack of gain because of his relationship with this wonderful woman. 
She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. What's that good consist of? She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She's like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. You see, economic productivity is central to this picture of this wonderful woman who is to be desired by a godly man who uh, does him good and not harm all the days of his life. She rises while it's still night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She works hard. Uh, she's an uh, industrious and an economically savvy uh, lady. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hand, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. She's got a business that's actually making money. It's not sort of turning over uh, you know, 100,000 a year and making a profit of 50 cents. It's actually doing really, really well. She puts her hands to the distaff. Um, her hands hold the spindle. There she is, industrious, again, working. She opens her hands to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy because she's got something to share with them from the wealth that she has earned. She's not afraid of snow for her household, for a householder clothed in scarlet, which is expensive cloth. And she makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple, more expensive, rich, ornamented uh, clothes, which will keep her kids warm and which identify her as a woman of wealth. And all of these things are a picture of industriousness. They're a picture of economic productivity. And they contribute to this biblical picture that, granted, uh, wealth can be dangerous, but these material blessings are a good thing. You get um, one-liners throughout the Proverbs to a similar effect. I'll just throw a few away just uh, to remind you of them. You'll have read them many times before. Proverbs 13, 22. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. It's really interesting, this, isn't it? Again, you've got the same sort of implication as you find in the life of Solomon. What sense would it make for Solomon to say uh, in Proverbs 13, 22, a good man leaves this terrible thing to his children's children, whereas a sinner, well, this terrible thing that he has is given to the righteous. It makes no sense at all. It only makes sense if the inheritance or the wealth of these people is a good thing and it's therefore a blessing in principle if a man can leave it to his children and his grandchildren. Similarly, the reward for humility and fear of the Lord is what? Proverbs 22 verse 4, riches and honour and life. Again, it makes no sense to imagine that the reward for humility will be a terrible thing. The reward for humility is a good thing. Similarly, Proverbs 28 19, whoever works his land will have plenty of bread but he who follows worthless pursuits will have plenty of poverty. You've got the kind of, um, uh, the, what would you call it, the, the law of predictable outcomes, which the book of, book of Proverbs um, highlights for us in various ways again and again. And notice again uh, throughout that, the assumption uh, on the lips of Solomon uh, in the Proverbs that wealth in itself is a good thing. So to get a biblical picture clear in our minds, we must never allow the genuine dangers of money and accumulating wealth and riches and the tremendous prosperity that the vast majority of us enjoy um, here in the modern West uh, and certainly by comparison with most people throughout the whole of human history and around the world today. We are tremendously wealthy. We have uh, riches that would make Solomon blush. Um, it, we mustn't make, we mustn't allow the, the dangers of those things to obscure the equally biblical picture of the sense in which they're a blessing from God. Now, of course, that raises questions about how we 
use them, but we do with them. We should come to that on a later occasion. Later occasion. But what that means then, if this stuff is all good, we've got to think carefully about how we evaluate our attempts to plan for the future. Because whatever we want to say about the dangers of presumptuous and uh, ungodly and proud uh, planning for our future, uh, it's not the case that all planning for the future is like that. Presumptuous and sinful planning is not the same as faithful, prayerful and humble planning. And just to uh, put some flesh on the bones there, again, consider some of the, the Proverbs. Obviously, it's the case that the way we think about the future needs to be conditioned by the fact that we don't know it. Proverbs 21, uh, 27 verse 1, don't boast about tomorrow for you don't know what a day may bring. 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Proverbs 19.21, many are the plans of the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. And so on. Proverbs 16.9, famously, the heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Proverbs 16.3, commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. Now, just notice a couple of things here. The obvious point that it's possible to plan for your future presumptuously, arrogantly, prayerlessly, proudly. It's possible that you'd be, uh, perhaps you've been in work for five or ten years or you're a young person, you're thinking about your future. It's, it will be perfectly possible for you to think about what I intend to do in the future in a way which makes you indistinguishable from the, the fool who thought he'd built his many barns to make himself safe and he didn't need God because he got all his money. Of course that's possible. And it will be grievous and foolish for us to plan for our future in that kind of way. But what are the kids going to eat? Who's going to pay the mortgage? Are you going to be dependent upon other people? Or are you going to make plans to provide for yourself? And it's very striking that even in those proverbs which highlight the dangers of thinking we can do it all ourselves, there's still the assumption that we ought to plan. We just ought to plan prayerfully and humbly uh, and with the recognition that it's the Lord, Lord's purpose that will stand. So the heart of a man plans his way. Like The heart of a man actually does do the planning. And of course, the Lord establishes his steps. Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. Because you have plans which you've committed to the Lord and they'll be established. In fact, even in James 4, the, the text which is most often cited against the uh, ungodly uh, versions of planning for our financial future, and rightly so, there is the assumption that we will be planning our financial well-being in the future. Let me read it and just uh, highlight exactly what I'm talking about. This is James 4.13, you know this text. Come now you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. That's what the Lord says to those arrogant traders who thought they could provide for themselves in such a way they didn't need God and didn't need anybody else. So what should they do? What, what's the alternative that James sets before them? Well, instead, you ought to say, what? If the Lord wills, we will live and do this and that. They ought not to say nothing. They ought to say, if the Lord wills. Notice it's a it's an almost um, uh, wooden insistence on recognising the Lord's sovereignty. If the Lord wills it. And sometimes some people are in the habit of doing this. There are some Christian traditions where people customarily say, Lord willing, the whole time. 
I have a friend who um, used to write DV, Deo or Deus, I forget the Latin case, Deus Valente, it means Lord willing or God willing. He used to write it at the bottom of emails when he was making any plans, I'll see you on Wednesday, DV, he'd write. And it's a, it's a tradition that some Christians actually have because they want to reflect this text and it, the importance it, may, it, it places upon subjecting our plans to the Lord. But notice he still said, I'll see you next Wednesday. Notice they still say, we will do this or that. But there's a recognition and subjection to the Lord's will in doing that. Now, just think about it for a second. Um, what does this mean we ought to actually do, practically speaking? Well, we ought to pray. We ought to pray that the Lord would provide for us. And there's no reason at all why this wouldn't get nitty gritty and granular and specific and practical in relation to the actual business that we're engaged in or the actual investments that we have for our retirement or whatever else it is, our kids' college or paying next month's grocery bill or whatever it is. Um, wouldn't it be weird if the, the one thing that we spent eight or ten hours of our day doing working for money or the one place where we'd put quite easily the largest proportion of our material assets was something that we weren't supposed to pray about and um, if, if it's a good thing if it would be a great outcome a tremendous blessing from God for him to be to provide for us a, a substantial income so that we are able to provide for our family and give and be generous and serve him in all kinds of ways that we wouldn't be able to if we had less then obviously there's no reason at all why we wouldn't pray for that. And it's really striking to me that this is painfully neglected in much reformed and evangelical piety. And I think the reason is simply this. It's that everyone is so worried about the danger of sounding like a prosperity gospel preacher or of ignoring the warnings about the dangers of money that we don't talk about it at all. And yet we work for it all the time. It's like we forget that we're Christians when we go and see our tax accountant or our investment advisor to try and minimize our tax bill or try and build our savings for retirement or or for the future or for whatever else it is it's really strange why would we not pray about that we pray about everything else it's absolutely ridiculous that we don't pray about those things so um examples you're you're working in business let's imagine uh you've got a team of people working for you uh, a bunch of sales guys and you've got a bunch of contracts coming in it's perfectly good indeed i'd say it's necessary for a Christian to pray that those contracts will be productive. Uh, if you're a farmer, you want to pray that your crops would grow. Um, if you have um, investments in uh, retirement account, you want to pray that those would provide for you, that over the long term they would yield a return which is profitable. Why would you not pray that? You're hoping for it. It's very strange, isn't it, that we should think that we can hope for something that we're not supposed to pray about. Of course we're supposed to pray about it. We're supposed to plan for it. We're supposed to pray about it. Now, somebody's going to say, yeah, but hold on, hold on, hold on. What about the dangers of acquisitiveness and covetousness and so on? Yes, um, there is always the danger of covetousness and acquisitiveness, but we don't get rid of that danger of greed and ungodliness by forgetting about the living God whenever we consider money. The way that we deal with our covetousness and acquisitiveness is by dealing with our covetousness and acquisitiveness. Those things will be a problem however much or however little we have. It is possible for somebody who has almost no financial resources or no financial resources at all to be greedy. The capacity for human greed is independent of the actual amount that we have. 
And so we mustn't think that we can solve the problem of our greed and covetousness and pride in our possessions just by having less of them. You can't solve contentment by having more. You can't solve greed by having less. You have to solve the greed problem and solve the contentment problem in prayer and in growth in personal godliness and in disciplining our thoughts. And then we have to pray for the financial return on our investments and for the financial success of our businesses. So I think of one or two men in the church I've spoken to you in the last, just the last couple of weeks about, um, you've shared with me just some practical financial thoughts about your future. Uh, this job or that job and this one I really love, but, uh, this one earns more, what shall I do? Um, well, uh, you ought to do, I'm not telling you what to do, uh, remember I didn't at the time, but um, as you decide which path to take, pray that the Lord provides for you financially. Why would you not do that? Okay, so just a couple of uh, final connections. I mentioned this, um, I, I said I'd, I'd uh, draw some of these links. Um, there are some important theological uh, connections here to God's triune life. Um, that there is in God a principle of overflowing abundance, of self-giving and growth without loss, in which the Father and the Son and the Spirit give themselves to each other without losing. And that's then reflected in the doctrine of creation, where that abundant, overflowing triune God has given, sorry, not quite, he has called into being a world which overflows with abundance. And so as creatures of a God who overflows abundantly, we find ourselves in a world where our labour produces a remarkable and abundant crop. You imagine the simple caricature of this. You have a handful of seeds, uh, which you could have ground to make a couple of tablespoons more flour, but instead of grinding them, you scattered them in, in your uh, back garden just to see what would happen. And you came back the next year and the earth had brought forth its increase by the grace of God. And instead of a handful of seeds, you got a bag of seeds. Now, the first guy who discovered that would have thought, wow, I wonder something here. Uh, maybe it was Adam. Uh, probably should, it certainly should have been, shouldn't it? Um, that he discovered that the earth would bring forth its increase in that glorious, magnificent way. And he saw in that a little created analogy of the, the um, overflowing, effervescent, a fruitfulness of the life of the triune God himself. Well, that uh, little um, cameo of uh, agricultural fruitfulness is actually mirrored everywhere else, where you know you can get a bunch of people together um, who all do different things, and you, you, you train them and put them to work in a factory, and you feed metal in one end and cars come out the other. And you think, how on earth did that happen? It happened because what they are is creatures made in the image of a overflowing abundant God and in all of our labors have the capacity to produce abundance because God is an abundant God. So the doctrine of the Trinity and the doctrine of creation form, if you like, the theological foundation of the fact that our work is productive. And that underlies actually why God can say this is a good thing, because what Solomon is enjoying, for example, or what the wife of noble character brings forth for her husband and her household is a little created analogy of the overflowing abundance of God. And so practically speaking, think of you men or, or, or any of you who are working, uh, seeking to provide for your families, you're showing your families little created snapshots uh, of the abundant generosity and grace of God. You're able to provide food for your children and maybe take your, your kids on vacation somewhere. And, and what they're experiencing is a little echo of God's goodness because the overflow of 
his goodness in creation, which your work allows you to harvest, you then share with others and give to others. Of course, all the stuff about um, planning, if we wanted to dig into that a bit more deeply, we'd um, pretty soon find ourselves in a discussion about the relationship between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And that would be a very good thing to talk about. Um, it would be helpful to remind ourselves that, um, for example, in Philippians, Philippians chapter 2, excuse me, uh, Philippians chapter 2, um, Paul urges his hearers to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling precisely because it is God who is at work in them to will and to act according to his good purposes. So you don't work out because God, work at something because God isn't doing it and you don't work at something in spite of the fact that God's doing it. We, we work at what we're doing because God is doing what he does and it's in that spirit that we're to approach all that planning for the future and so on and so forth. All of which then brings us uh, to the brink of some uh, more practical nitty-gritty questions about what uh, kinds of work and perhaps even what kinds of investments it might be fruitful and Christian to put our time and our money into. And uh, It may surprise you that the Bible has some principles which can be put to work in that area too even at the very granular level of okay what what kind of things would it be a good idea for me to put my retirement account into um, or put into my retirement account or what kinds of business should I go into those kinds of questions actually scripture has something to say about um, uh, it's not going to tell you which stocks on the S&P 500 to pick but it will tell you um, well it might actually um, I'm not going to tell you. Um, I'm not. Um, I, I'm the wrong kind of advisor for that kind of task. Um, but I will certainly try and take you through some of the uh, nitty gritty, very granular biblical material, which may help you to think through those kinds of questions for yourself as and when the, the um, uh, uh, decisions come your way. And for many of you, they will have come your way already.